Hi, this is David Flower, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Greta and Katie. Good morning, Grantham Church. Good to see you in worship. If you're just joining us, my name is David Flowers. I'm the senior pastor here at Grantham. We have a guest speaker this morning, and we normally don't give an introduction to this person because he's an insider. He's one of us, uh, Pastor John Yates. Uh, John is actually my predecessor. For those of you who have been at Grantham uh, long enough, you know this. He's also a current uh, board member. And um, when I came on seven years ago, it would have been, oh, about six months later, so this would have been 2017, um, I rehired John for a short period of time to help out in congregational care. Do you remember this? Uh, <clears throat> I also, later on in the next year, went to General Assembly, and the bishop at the time, Ken Hoke, uh, interviewed me and John, and uh, we talked a little bit about the transition that Grantham had been through. And one of the questions I got was, why did you rehire your predecessor? I mean, nine out of ten times, folks, that would not work right? And they actually discourage you from doing it. They made an exception here. And they said, why? Well, I gave a lengthy answer. The part I remember was, well, John is like Gandalf. <laughs> why would you not rehire Gandalf to be a guide, a help, and support? And John, that's what you have been to me. I love you, brother, and we're excited to hear you preach this morning. John is going to come and share from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, you can see that in your bulletin where he's going. And John is a bit of an expert on the book of Revelation. You say, how can you say that? Well, he's written a commentary on the book of Revelation, so that means he must know something, right? Would you open up your hearts and your minds and put your hands together for John as he comes? Just welcome him. After that general conference, I received in the mail a box from the husband of the woman who is going to be leading a workshop for us in a couple of weeks, Christina Embry. Her husband sent me a little box with a coffee cup in it that said, what would Gondorf do? <laughs> I still have that coffee cup, thank you. Um, and I want to thank the... Uh, I want to thank David for uh, picking up the mantle and doing so well. Thank you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Zimbabwe is where more brethren in Christ live than any other country in the world. In 1980, Zimbabwe experienced a violent revolutionary war, followed by strife between the two major ethnic groups, the Shona 
and the Ndebele. Most Brethren in Christ in Zambia are Ndebele. A few years later, government troops killed tens of thousands of Ndebele in their homelands. Later, the policies of Robert Mugabe, the president, led to rampant inflation. The Reserve Bank in Zimbabwe routinely printed money to fund budget deficits, causing official annual inflation rates to skyrocket. In Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, I spoke with a man in his 80s who had worked for the Ministry of Education his entire life. And he was back at work at the book room, Christian book room, because inflation had rendered his pension worthless. Moreover, uncertain weather there periodically brings famine. And malaria, AIDS, and COVID have added to the death toll brought by war, strife, and famine. Our brothers and sisters in Zimbabwe have experienced the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6. War, strife, famine, and death. I should add that our Zimbabwean brothers and sisters had a presidential election last week, I guess two weeks ago, in the last week and a half. The election is over, but the fairness of the vote count is in question, and there are protests and a call for a rerun. Thankfully, reaction has largely been peaceful. Several decades ago, during an election, Zimbabwean Brethren in Christ Bishop, Denise Ndlovu, told me other churches turned to the Brethren in Christ for guidance because of our peace stance. He said, although we didn't get the result we wanted, the election was peaceful. Let's pray with our Zimbabwean brothers and sisters that peace will come in the weeks and years ahead. On a related note, Brethren in Christ, Pastor Mushana, a Zimbabwean ministering in Johannesburg, South Africa, was shot and killed last week. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are with our brothers and sisters in Zimbabwe. War, strife, famine, and death. And they are also with us. Last month, the Harrisburg Patriot printed a political cartoon that included the four horsemen of Revelation. And we see war, strife, famine, and death in our world. Today we focus on John's vision in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 6. Look at it with me in your Bible. We're not going to project the text today. Look at it in your Bible or in a pew Bible in front of you, or on your phone, as I have learned to do. Revelation 6, 1 to 8. Revelation 6, 1 to 8. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I heard before, there before me, and there before me, was a white horse. The rider had a bow. He was given a crown 
and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. The rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. The rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. The rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind. They were given a power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. First, John sees a white horse. The rider on the white horse has a bow, the weapon of war. The victor's crown was awarded to him. It's the crown that was awarded to the conqueror in war. Indeed, the horse itself was an animal that warriors rode into war. These symbols all suggest that the rider, that the white horse represents warfare. And war is all around us today. In the U.S., we immediately think of the war in Ukraine. But our children have never known a time when our country was not at war someplace in the world. Moreover, 32 countries, other countries, are experiencing conflict as we speak. The white horse of war is galloping across our earth. When the lamb opens the second seal, a fiery red horse appears. The red horse symbolizes civil strife that is often the result of war. The rider is permitted to take peace from the earth so that people kill one another. The rider on the red horse was given a large sword, and despite the name in our translation, this weapon was equivalent to our handgun. It was associated with close conflict and civil strife. The common result of warfare. Today, the fiery red horse is with us. Much of this is due to worldwide immigration caused by wars. Some of us fear immigration. One and a half million persons migrated to the United States in 2021. Now, I am not politically astute to know how we should regulate immigration at our borders. I'm not smart enough to do that. But I do know that Jesus would say, if immigrants are here, we take care of them. Unfortunately, some Americans treat immigrants as enemies. Russell Moore, the new editor of Christianity Today, quotes a survey that found the more evangelistic work a church does, the more welcoming they are to refugees. 
Moore elaborates, when churches give up on evangelism, they also give up on actively engaging with and loving their neighbors. And that's bad news for everyone. You can't hate a person you want to share the gospel with. When you have people who are trained to share the gospel with their neighbors, they have the understanding the people in our community are not our enemies. Russell Moore is right. Treating immigrants as enemies is not an option for followers of Jesus. Strife is on the red horse and it inhibits us from sharing the gospel with those who need Jesus. When the lamb opened the third seal, a black horse emerges. The symbols here are associated with famine. The rider on the black horse held a pair of scales in his hand. Scales were used to measure grain. And this symbol points to scarcity of food. Then what sounded like a voice says, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. The word translated quart was a daily ration of grain for one person. The word translated day's wage was a denarius. You can find this in the footnote of your Bible, probably. A day's wage is a denarius, a coin typically paid to common laborers at the end of a workday. A worker can barely enough pay an, a worker can barely afford enough wheat to feed himself. To feed his family as well, he'll have to settle for barley, the diet of the poor. The average laborer who attends our churches in Zimbabwe today makes about $6 a day. Our experience in Africa was that food in the grocery costs about the same there as it does here. Could your family survive on $6 a day? The voice continues, do not harm the oil and the wine. These were the commodities of the rich. In times of famine, the wealthy usually, often at least, go untouched and even profit. One day, I took a group of students to an open-air market in Ghana where the poor used their daily rations to buy grain and perhaps a piece of fish. Before we left, I took the students to the parking garage under the market where the luxury vehicles of those who owned the market were parked. When grain is scarce, the poor, for the poor, the rich enjoy their oil and wine. Our African brothers and sisters experience the black horse of famine, which follows war and strife. And food shortage is common across our world. South Sudan, Yemen, Ethiopia. Indeed, a quarter of the United States is classified as in drought. Wildfires in Europe, Asia, North Africa, Australia, deforestation in South America, all have led to drought-like conditions. The floods in our own Maui caused the death of over 100 persons, and flooding is crisis level in Pakistan, Bangladesh, I'm sorry, India, Bangladesh. All these cause a scarcity of food. Famine is on the black horse.
Finally, when the Lamb opens the fourth seal, a pale horse, the color of rotting flesh, comes onto the scene. The rider is called Death, and Hades, the place of the dead, follow with him. The rider on the pale horse is given the authority to kill with the sword, famine, and plague. And death is with us today. Malaria, AIDS, COVID, cancer. There were 20 children in Amy's generation. 17 of them survived into adulthood. Most of them lived into their 80s. In Amy's generation, her older brother and sister have both died of cancer. Some scientists believe that the increase in diseases like cancer are caused by environmental degradation. In any case, death is on the pale horse. Our world is overrun by the four horsemen of the apocalypse. War, strife, famine, and death. Tribulation comes to Jesus' followers throughout the world. Indeed, suffering often comes because they follow Jesus. Recently, in Pakistan, 20 Christian churches were destroyed, and about 100 Christians lost their houses and possessions. The four horsemen are part of our world today. What does it mean to follow Jesus in the context of war, strife, famine, and death? We follow the, found the teachers of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Matthew 5, if you want to turn there, you may. Matthew 5, first of all, verses 28 and 29. This is what Jesus says in the context of the four horsemen and our life today. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Down to verse 38 and 39 of Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now verses 43 and 44, Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Can we practice these teachings of Jesus in our world of war, strife, famine, and death? Martin Luther thought Jesus' teachings were only for the spiritual world, not for the political realm. Dispensational Christians say Jesus' commands are for the future kingdom. They don't apply to us. Many Christians, I know, think it's impossible to follow Jesus in today's world. But... Paul did not agree. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You can go to Romans 12 if you want to now. I'll give, get there in a moment. In Romans 12, 2, Paul answers the question of how Jesus' teachings can be practiced in our world. Paul's answer, do not be conformed to the world. That's his answer. And then Paul goes directly to the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to tell us how not to be conformed to the world. Romans chapter 12, I'm now in verse 9. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. 
Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I'm in verse 14 of Romans 12 now. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 17 now, Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. And then verse 21 of Romans 12. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is how Jesus tells us not to conform to the world. This world of war, strife, famine, death. Paul believes Jesus' teachings are to be practiced in our world. During the Jim Crow era in the United States, founded Quinonia Farms, an integrated community in Georgia. Jordan's brother said, I follow Jesus up to a point. Clarence asked, is that point the cross? His brother responded, that's right. I'm not getting on that cross for anyone. But we are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Our model for following Jesus is the Old Testament prophets. Don't bother to turn here. I'll be going too quick through them for you to find them. But our model is the Old Testament prophets. Let me quote a couple of them. Isaiah 5, 7. The Lord Almighty looked for justice, but found bloodshed. Looked for righteousness, but found cries of distress. Isaiah 10, 2. Why does the way of the wicked prosper, and the faithless live at ease? Ezekiel 23, 29. People oppress the poor and needy and treat the al- and mistreat the alien by denying justice. Malachi 3.5, God testifies against those who defraud laborers, oppress widows and orphans, and deprive aliens of justice. And that classic text, Amos chapter 5, verse 24, let justice flow down like rivers and righteousness like a never-ending stream. The prophets make it clear. God is on the side of justice in our world of war, strife, famine, and death. Like the prophets, the followers of Jesus denounce injustices. Followers of Jesus address both the destruction of the unborn and the conditions that promote poverty and violence. Followers of Jesus are pro-life on abortion. Followers of Jesus are pro-life on war. 
Followers of Jesus are pro-life on gun violence. Followers of Jesus are pro-life on poverty. Indeed, pro followers of Jesus are pro-life on all injustices brought in the context of the four horsemen of war, strife, famine, and death. Now, we may arrive at different conclusions regarding what pro-life means in each of those situations, but our decisions are guided by our commitment to Jesus, the Lamb. The, content, the context of our witness today is the four horsemen of Revelation, the sealed judgments of Revelation, war, strife, famine, and death. And we ask, how long, Lord? How long, Lord? Back to Revelation chapter 6, okay? You back there? Verses 9 to 11, Revelation 6, 9 to 11. We're just picking up where we left off. Souls under the altar when the Lamb opens the fifth seal say what I just said. How long, Lord? And we said it earlier in our worship. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. They called out with a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters who were killed, just as they had been. Who are these souls, and what are they doing under the altar? They are the souls, like you and I, who bear witness to their faith, even to the point of death. Their master, Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, suffered on a cross to accomplish their salvation. And likewise, we followers of Jesus, we follow Jesus by witnessing in the face of suffering and even death. Indeed, our suffering is a sacrifice on that altar just like Jesus' death was sacrificial. Now, let's be clear. We do not accomplish our own salvation. Only Jesus can do that. Yet, we follow the example of Jesus who says, whoever does not carry my cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. By suffering and dying, Jesus' faithful witnesses are doing what Jesus did. Nevertheless, the words of those souls under the altar are troubling. Look at verse 10. They call for God to judge and avenge their blood on the inhabitants of the earth. But that word translated avenge is a cognate of the word justice. They are asking God not for vengeance, but for justice. And we sometimes feel like them, don't we? We see persons prospering in their wickedness, and we suffer trying to be good. In fact, sometimes we suffer because we're good. So we say with the soul that's under the altar, how long, O Lord? How long do we have to wait for justice? Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 11, tells the souls under the altar to wait a little longer until the number of those to be killed is complete. And what in the world does that mean? Perhaps the statement is merely saying symbolically, other people have to die before God intervenes. But there may be even a more profound meaning here. Perhaps the suffering and death of Jesus' followers are the means by which 
God brings redemption to our world. Now, again, only Jesus can save us. But our suffering has meaning as a part of God's redemptive work in the world. Moreover, the catastrophes that follow in the sixth seal, Revelation 6, verses 12 to 17, these tribulations that I will read in a moment are God's answer to the prayers of the saints who sacrificed their lives for Jesus. Let's read it. Revelation 6, 12. I watched as the Lamb opened the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat's hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell, from, fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Verse 15 now in Revelation 6. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, everyone else, both slave and free, hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and rocks, fall on us to hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of wrath has come, and who can withstand it? What an amazing display of the power of God in answer to the prayers of the saints and in answer to their question, how long, Lord? But how do we conceptualize the sun darkening and the cosmic consequences that that would bring? How do we visualize stars that are many times size, the size of the earth falling on the earth? How do we imagine a sky with solid of solid substance with stars attached that rolls up like a window shade to capture the immensity of God's judgment literal language will not do As a matter of fact it, symbolic language is more profound the language of cosmic catastrophe communicates the reality of God's justice in Acts chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Peter uses the same symbolic language to describe the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Peter employs spiritual language for the realities of Pentecost that are indescribable in rational terms. And in Revelation 6, John does the same thing when he describes God taking the universe apart in order to purge it and to restore it as the new heaven and the new earth. No wonder Revelation has such graphic language to describe such a catastrophic event. Let me speak now, primarily to the young people here. We older ones can listen, you might, we might learn something. I used to resent sermons like this. Because older people would say, the end of the world is at hand. You will likely not grow up, get a job, marry, have children before Jesus comes. Your world is doomed. And that same message comes today from politicians who scare us with terrible predictions of the future if the other party gets into power. 
Let me emphasize. Do not let anyone tell you that you have no future on this earth and that all signs point to the end of the world. That is not the biblical message. The message of the Bible is God will symbolically take our world apart with a purging fire to restore it as the new heaven and the new earth. Our only hope is in Jesus. But we are part of God's transformation of this world into the new creation. What we are doing to bring justice to our part of this world where we live is part of God's work. Our actions contribute to God recreating the world into the new heaven and new earth. Our actions in this life have eternal consequences. We have a future on this earth. Pastor David has run this earth into the cosmic trash, trash heap, or do you say dustbin, one or the other? Dustbin, that's a little dated, okay. Um, <laughs> anybody know what a dustbin is? I'm sorry. Um, he's usually more up to date than I am. Although we live now in a world where the four horsemen of Revelation, war, strife, famine, and death dominate, God will transform our world into the new heaven and the new earth. Never give up on this earth. Its future is not catastrophe. Its future is triumph. Suffering followers of the slaughtered lamb, Jesus, will receive the final answer to their question, how long, when Jesus returns, to establish the new heaven and the new earth. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, give us strength to be faithful. Even in the tribulations of war, strife, famine, and death, when we ask how long, help us to take up our cross and follow Jesus with the confidence that you will use our efforts to bring justice to our world and in ultimately establish the new heaven and the new earth. Give us resolve to bear witness until we win a crown of life by faithfully following the slaughtered lamb who is worthy of our praise. Amen.